Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Emma Whitfield here, account manager at the Webby Awards. I just wanted to let you in on a little secret. The final entry deadline for the 23rd annual Webby Awards is coming up December 14th. This year, we've added a ton of new categories to honor your work across voice, podcasts, games, social content series and campaigns, branded entertainment, and more. Don't miss your chance to enter. Head on over to webbyawards.com and submit your work before the deadline on Friday, December 14th. Let's get started. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Demand better of the internet. Remember, it's all just prelude. You ain't seen nothing yet. Print. Cheers, lovies. 20, go to 10. Hey, welcome back. Last week, we celebrated the 8th Annual Lovey Awards. That's the European sister of the Webbies in London which gave me a chance to sit down with today's guest, the incredible Dr. Sue Black. Dr. Sue Black is this year's Lovey Lifetime Achievement Award recipient, and for good reason. She's the founder of Tech Mums, she formed BCS Women, and she spearheaded the campaign to save Bletchley Park, where over 10,000 codebreakers worked during World War II, including 8,000 women. Dr. Black has been a champion of women in technology all her life. We talk about that, and we start here at the beginning when she first got into computing. I always loved maths as a kid. So, you know, I was the kind of geeky kid that, that spent their pocket money on math textbooks. Um, so that was kind of there from the beginning, I guess. And I, I didn't know anything about technology when I was a kid because that was quite a long time ago now. And, I mean, it wasn't really until... So I, I ended up at 25. I was like single parent, three kids living on a a council estate in Brixton and thinking, how am I going to provide a good life for my kids? I hadn't expected to be a single parent. What's, what's in, for people who don't know, what's an account estate? A, a council estate oh, is, council um, estate. I think it's the project. Okay, got it. I'm not 100% Some sure, state, but I think it's state like. State-supported yeah. housing, okay. So I, I was trying to work out, well, what am I going to do? I thought if I, you know, we were basically on welfare, so... I thought, well, if I want to go out and get a job and earn money. But actually, when I thought about it, I didn't have many qualifications. If I'd gone out to work, I wouldn't actually have earned enough money to be able to cover childcare costs. So with three small kids, that just wasn't an option. So then I started thinking about, well, maybe I should go back into education. I'd left school when I was 16. And, you know, I mean, hopefully if I can get some qualifications, then maybe I can earn more money. Um, so basically, that's what I did. I went along to the local college did a one year like fast track maths course at night school and then that gave me the qualifications which meant I could apply to do a degree at university and my options really were maths or I was kind of 
quite interested in technology. I'd done a bit of coding as part of the maths course, which I really enjoyed, but I didn't didn't quite understand what was going on, but it, I, I liked it. Uh-huh. I remember that I had this kind of overall view that like technology is the future. It's just going to change everything around us. But I think I didn't know exactly in what way, but I've just found the whole potential of technology very exciting. And I think that's kind of what led me down the computer science route rather than uh, maths. Yeah, so then I, I enrolled for a, a computing degree, did that, and then um, and then applied for a PhD wow. in software engineering. And it took me seven years, but um, finally got that. And, you know, like with me, I was still a single parent bringing up the kids on my own. That got easier and easier as time went on. You know, when they were really small, it was, it was really hard. I was taking the kids to school, getting to uni at 10 a.m. I had to leave at 2 to pick them up at 3 p.m. And, you know, so I only had four hours a day at uni, but classes ran from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. So the first year in particular was very difficult. And I, I nearly dropped out several times, to be honest. Um, but kind of managed to make it through the first year. I mean, that's just like a, I mean, that's a, just want to emphasize here for, that is just, I mean, trying to imagine that is just uh, mind-numbingly difficult. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I see, you know, I, you know, I have two children and, right. um, and, but you know, not at all going through something as challenging as what you're going through there. I just can't imagine that. I think I think I was I was very driven to get somewhere and to make, you know, some positive change happen in my life. And, you know, I really wanted to give my kids, kids a good yeah. future. And, um, yeah, I guess that kind of kept me going. But also people around me, you know, like I made friends. So my friends on the course would, would get me the notes and stuff from classes and my personal tutor. I can remember going in at least twice crying, saying, I, j- I just can't cope with all of this. I'm like, I'm going to fail the year. I'm going to, I can't submit my coursework on time and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, he persuaded me to stay, basically. I mean, and I just scraped through the first year. I think we had to get 50% and I think I got 52. So, you know, if I'd got 48, yeah. it might have been a very different story. But, you know, thank goodness I got through. And then, the you know, the next year it was a bit easier and it kind of just got easier and easier, really. So um, after you got out of school, after you finished PhD, did you yeah. go and try and look for the private sector or did you stay in so, academia? Or? Well, when I finished my degree, I, I'd kind of thought that I wanted to be like an IT consultant going into companies solving problems with technology. But then I realized that actually, you know, I had three small children. How was I going to do it? It just wasn't going to work. So the sort of job that I really wanted, I couldn't really apply for. But then with the um, chance of doing a PhD, I thought, well, you know, that that will definitely help my career that'll take me places and I also applied to be a maths teacher like uh, to do a, a one-year course to to be a maths teacher in um, secondary schools and I, I got accepted for both and then I decided I thought the PhD was uh, was a better bet and yeah and then started the program about I think two to three years into it I applied for a full-time lectureship so then I became a full and I got that so I became a full-time lecturer at the university and then, you know, I just applied for promotion any time I could, really. And so a few years after that, um, I ended up applying for a job as head of department at another university and got that. So I can't remember exactly how long that took, but maybe about eight eight years or something. What was the environment for women in technology around that time, like in both in academia and just in, you know, in tech in general? Well, so within the university, I mean, it seemed fine to me. I don't remember any major challenges. I think the challenges that I had really were as a PhD student going out to conferences. And so my PhD supervisor had said to me, you know, you've got to network when you're submitting research papers that you've written, 
you want the people that are kind of like peer reviewing them to to know who you are to have had a conversation with you and that kind of made sense to me but I was really really shy so you know my PhD supervisor was suggesting that that I go and network at conferences and and chat to people basically that I didn't know and for me that was like a horrific thing to ask me to do I was so scared because I was really really shy and actually at the first conference that I went to uh, it was a computer science conference. It was probably about, I don't know, 80 to 90% guys, you know, 10 to 20% women. And uh, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll set myself the challenge. I'll talk to one person at this conference and see how it goes. And so one of the presenters gave a really sort of down-to-earth presentation. I thought, well, I'll go and chat to him. He seems like a friendly person. So I chatted to him in the break about research, about his talk. You know, we had a nice chat. And then for the rest of the conference, every time I looked around, he he was staring at me. And I just got completely freaked out by that. I honestly had no clue why he was staring at me. And I came to the conclusion that I must have said something to upset him. Now, right. looking back now, that yeah. just seems ludicrous to me. But honestly, you know, possibly my lack of emotional intelligence. I just didn't know what was going on. Um, and so that kind of scared me. And I, I kind of like tried talking to people um, at a couple of other conferences after that. And, you know, didn't always have a great result. Um, you know, I, I can remember chatting to two guys. And you're, and you're in like a huge minority here. You're this, yeah. it's like one in 10, sorry. The yeah, number. about one in 10, I guess, women to men. So yeah, and then chat to some other guys. And I can just remember going up and trying to start a conversation with two guys and they just completely ignored me. And I just stood there for 30 seconds thinking, oh, are you actually just really not going to, to respond to what I said? And then after about 30 seconds or a minute, I was just like, Oh, and I just like walked away, went into the loo and started crying because mm. I was just like, this is so hard. Why yeah. is it so hard? I was very traumatized by it. You know, I suppose if I'd been a very confident person at that time, I could have just brushed it off. But I just really wasn't. And then sometime after that, I went to a women in science conference in Brussels. And I can remember walking into the conference thinking, oh, I'm no good at conferences. You know, like I'm scared to talk to people. I wonder what's going to happen. And um, it was just such a different atmosphere. It was crazily different you know like I went in got my badge at registration went over to get a cup of tea and someone started talking to me so that was I think 98% women I think it was just two guys and about 100 women you know someone started talking to me and then someone else joined us and then for the whole of the two days I don't know if I started conversations because everything was so comfortable and so easy that I just didn't even I just forgot about all of that stuff that I was worried about it just went away and that conference just really changed my life because it really helped me to realize that if you're in the majority, life is just so much easier. You know, it was a real revelation. So I came back from that. So that was in 98. I came back from that and set up the UK's first online network for women in uh, tech, BCS Women, so it's British Computer Society Women's Group, so that I could network together all the women working in technology online. So even if we didn't meet at conferences, we could meet up online. You're teaching at the same time, right? Do you see the same thing sort of going on with your students? Was it like mostly men who are students in your in your programs? Yeah, so yeah, so it depended um, what kind of program they were on, how it's what it seemed like was that basically the more technical the degree, the less women basically. So we had like business IT degrees, which were about fifty fifty, which was great. And then the more technical you got, it was probably down to I don't know about fifteen percent women probably. Did you find yourself like trying to? counteract some of these issues as a teacher to these people yeah just well just kind of like look after the women and I think you know I kind of remember sitting in tutorials as a first year undergraduate in like programming tutorials thinking 
I'm not going to ask any questions at all because I don't want to look like an idiot. And, you know, what I found then was that most of the guys coming in had, um, they'd done computing at school, you know, maybe at A-level, so kind of up to age 18, and they probably had a computer at home. And so they'd just done loads and loads of programming, probably for years. Um, whereas most of the women coming in were just interested in technology, kind of like me, interested in technology, but hadn't really had so much access to it experience. And so it seemed right from the beginning that not everybody, but lots of the women were kind of at a disadvantage, really. And I, I saw the same kind of pattern with students that I was teaching, too. And so this is, I mean, I can, I'm sensing the push and the motivation for founding Tech Moms yeah. here. Yeah, 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 Tell yeah me absolutely. About that. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, so I was, I, you know, I kind of rose up to being head of department and then um, decided to, to leave that role. Um, and one of the things I really wanted to do was to try and help people to understand the benefits of technology. And I kind of found that throughout my career then, working in academia as a computer scientist, that quite a lot of the time, the way that technology is portrayed in the media is quite negative. You know, so it would be about computers taking away our jobs or, you know, big government IT projects that have failed and wasted millions of pounds of taxpayers' money. And just kind of that kind of thing over and over and over. And to me, you know, I thought technology is the future. It's going to offer just so many opportunities to so many people. And I, I really felt that, you know, kind of coming from my background, technology and education have just massively changed my life, my kids' lives, you know, taking us out of poverty, basically, and into, you know, having enough money to pay the bills, to, to buy food and stuff. And so it just dramatically changed our lives. And so I really wanted to do something about that and I wasn't quite sure what to start with I started running um, coding and app design workshops with seven-year-old kids and I kind of think what I was trying to do was to work out whether because there wasn't any coding or anything like that in schools at the time whether seven-year-old kids could do that kind of stuff um, one of the government ministers was saying that you know computing was too difficult you needed to be at least 14 or something before you studied it and I just thought no that's that's rubbish so put together these workshops and started running them with seven-year-olds. Um, and it went really well. Like the kids loved it. The kids could do the coding. So it was all great. And they were designing their own apps and getting very excited about it. So that worked really well. We got the parents in at the end of the day because I wanted the parents to see what the kids were doing and have a go themselves. And so, you know, when we invited the parents to get involved, I noticed that the dads in general would just kind of slight step in and have a go. And the mums, you could just see the look on their faces was much more hesitant. And, mm. you know, I, I could kind of see that they were thinking, no, please don't ask me to do that. Obviously not everybody, but, you know, I got a sure. sense of that. And that just kind of sparked something in my head. You know, like, why don't I try and put a program together to teach mums technology skills? And I found out around that time also that research had been done looking at kids' achievement in literacy and numeracy at age 11. And they found that the main positive influencing factors on kids doing well in those areas at age 11 were their mum's education and their home environment. So I thought, OK, so if I could put together a program which teaches mum's tech skills, builds their confidence, then that will not only change the mum's lives and show them what opportunities are out there, build their skills, but it'll also change the kids' lives and, and it will provide a more sort of like tech positive, I suppose, environment at home. So the kids will be more likely to, if they learn stuff at school, to then be able to do something with it at home. And so kind of all of that together, plus really wanting to create more 
women role models in technology. And also, I haven't heard it so much recently, but there was a thing at the time where various people were saying, oh, it's so easy, your mum can, you know, your mum can do it. And I just like that just yeah, that's annoys me intensely. Yeah. And because it's like, well, so is that making out that the mums are the most stupid yeah. people in society? A, it's, it's like, terrible thing to yeah, say. yeah, yeah, it's awful. So kind of loads of those things together made me think, why don't I put together a programme specifically for mums? And I think coming from my background, I really wanted to reach mums who possibly wouldn't have a chance to just find that on their own. And so, you know, kind of as a as a university educated mum who's got money, you can find stuff online. You can, you know, you know where to go for resources. But possibly if you're a mum living on benefits like I was previously on welfare or, you know, you just come from a background where you left school at 16 and you don't know what's out there. I, I just really wanted to target those mums. And uh, so how does it work? How does how did you do that? And how does the program work? So we started off, I put together six modules and like two hour modules and we just ran them one a week for two hours during school hours. So the first one is like basic office IT skills like, you know, what is the cloud using Google Drive, email documents and spreadsheet stuff, then app design, web design, social media, staying safe online and coding in Python. Mm. So that's the program to start with. And, and it's more, it's not, you know, like teaching loads and loads and loads of skills so the mums come out of it able to go straight into some technology job that wasn't yeah. the idea the whole idea is to show all of these opportunities and build the mum's confidence that they can do stuff with technology and so from from that point of view it absolutely worked we had Brunel University run a research project when we started looking at our mum's attitudes towards technology and towards themselves and their, uh, the mum's like general self-esteem absolutely rocketed, like going through the programme. And we could see that from seeing the mums themselves. You know, we had a videographer come in in the first week and the last week. And she said she couldn't believe it was the same mums that come in wow. the first week because they're just their attitude towards themselves and everything was just so different. So that was really cool. So we ran that for several years uh, in several different places. And more recently, we've been looking at doing stuff online too. Um, because the in-person um, classes work really well, but, you know, we can reach more people if we do stuff online. So we put together a short online course, which is up online on techmums.co on our website. And we've also ran Tech Mums TV. So we got some funding from Nominet Trust earlier this year to work with Homestart UK, who work with mums around the country. And we put together a program called Tech Mums TV. So we partnered with Facebook. So every... I can't remember which morning it was like Thursday morning for five weeks. We live streamed kind of like a mums in tech chat show uh, from Facebook HQ in London. And, um, you know, so we'd have mums coming in talking about their stories about being a mum, what their experience has been. But we'd also have technology people coming in. Um, some of them were mums too, talking about technology, which was, was relevant to mums lives, really. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we just had a, an amazing uh, response to that. We had over 300,000 views reasonably quickly. And we just won the Beamer Inclusion and Diversity Award for Tech Mums TV. And we're looking to, to run that again next year. Awesome. And you, and you have a goal for Tech Mums, right? Of, uh, I read the yeah. goal is a million. A million mums by 2020. How, how, you, how are you doing? Uh, <laughs> well, I guess if if we count the 300,000, they're not sure. so bad. If we run that again, presumably we'll get more. So, 
you know, I think well on the way. And I think now that we've had practice doing that, you know, Tech Mums TV season two is going to be bigger and better. Yeah. We've also extended the in-person program to 10 weeks now because we found that the main, not exactly criticism, but the main feedback we got from mums uh, on completing the, the original course was that it wasn't long enough. So we've now extended that out to 10 weeks and we're piloting that from January in various locations around the UK. And it now includes stuff like how to get a job, how to find a job online, how to set up your own business and that kind of stuff too. One of the things that strikes me um, listening to you tell a story is a lot of it is about the training, but so much of it also is about just changing the overall story of women in technology and uh, helping women's confidence in these areas and just really like reshaping the environment that we all live in is almost as important as giving them giving them these skills yeah yeah absolutely it completely is and and i think i guess you know i've realized i've gone from be being a very i guess underconfident shy person through to being a very confident and not shy at all person and i guess you know it's taken me 30 years to, to make that change happen um and I've kind of worked on it in myself the whole time. I think I realized quite a while ago that if I wasn't very confident and didn't kind of put myself out there, I wasn't going to go anywhere. You know, like my career wasn't going to go anywhere. And so I've gradually just pushed myself to do slightly scary things kind of over and over again. And now that's actually what I look forward to. I look forward to the scary things, which is crazy because it's kind of like the opposite of how I felt earlier. How did you, so, I mean, any insights on how you made that? transition i mean you talked about that the conference was really important but it's such a dramatic thing that you've just described and i'm sure at the end of the day it's just something that happens over time and it's hard to put your finger on one thing but um for other people out there who are listening was there is there any you know moments that sort of like where you where you push through and were able to click over to the other side of confidence and 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 uh and that kind of thing I think there's probably a, a few key moments. I mean, one that just comes into my head now is so when I started my PhD, I to earn money to kind of um, boost my income, I did part time teaching. So I was teaching students. And, and honestly, for me, that's probably like the most scary thing that I could put myself forward through forward for really the thought of standing in front of even a couple of people scared me half to death. Um, but so the first, I remember the first class, uh, I taught a maths class, the first class I taught the night before, I honestly did not sleep at all. I was so scared. And then, you know, I, I kind of like went into the classroom on the day thinking, oh, you know, I've complete imposter syndrome, <laughs> my first ever class. And um, it just completely worried that I would be rubbish and the class would be rubbish and they'd make complaints about me or whatever. I don't know. But, you know, I just kind of went in and... I don't know, said some things, did a bit of teaching. And at the end of the class, I just remember walking out there absolutely buzzing, thinking, oh, my goodness, I actually taught a class. It seems like everyone enjoyed it and they learned stuff. Yeah. And it, it was amazing, you know. And so, you know, I guess doing things like that over and over, like, you know, the first time I had to deliver a, a paper at a conference, you know, I can remember shaking. I was just absolutely petrified. Um, and but doing those things then has kind of gradually helped me to kind of be who I am now. And I have to say, just life is just so much easier when, when you're not scared of all these things around you all the time. So it's, you know, it's just made my life easier. Yeah. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think I, I didn't quite really get this until you know we honored you at the lovies last night yeah and, uh, the folks on the team made this really uh but i thought it was a really beautiful uh video so yeah it was so story. cool yeah. yeah and i i personally didn't get this one point which as it sort of clicked in my head i was like oh my god i i totally missed that and um it's a story of butchley park and i want you to tell talk a little bit about it and um the part i didn't get was how important it was that this place physical place that was actually a place where thousands of women um, worked to break codes during the Second World War. Yeah, that like preserving it was not just about preserving the the historic site of a computer, an important computer place, and that kind of stuff. But it actually ties into preserving these things that are part of women's history and technology, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the first time I went up there, I think was two thousand and three, and I didn't really know anything much about Bletchley Park at the time. I think all I knew was that the code breakers worked there. And I had in my head, I think, that it was like 50 old blokes. I don't know why, but maybe yeah. that was kind of the story that was around at the time. So knew practically nothing. I went to a meeting there and then went for a walk around the site because it's a 26-acre site. It's quite large. Um, walked into one of the buildings there and saw these guys kind of tinkering away with this kind of like massive feat of engineering. I just didn't really know what it was, and I thought it looked interesting. So I went over to chat to them and um, asked them what it was. They they told me about Turing's bomb machine, um, which if anyone's seen The Imitation Game, it's Christopher, the machine in The Imitation right. Game. And so if and, people have seen that movie, they would get yeah. a general sense of what Bletchley Park looks like. Yeah, Probably yeah, absolutely, exactly. absolutely. Yeah, but it's, it's quite funny with the film because Turing didn't actually build, physically build that machine. So that, you know, that part of the story is, is not quite right sure. in the film, but it's a great film. And also yeah. there was only one woman and not 8,000, but you know, hey-ho. <laughs> Um, it's amazing that there's a, a Hollywood film about Bletchley Park because now when I go around the world and talk about it, people know what I'm talking about. So I had a chat to these guys. They were telling me about Turing's bomb machine. Then said they said, why are you here? So I said, oh, I'm here representing this group of women in computing. And uh, they said, oh, did you know that more than half the people that worked here were women? So I was like, no, because I kind of thought it was 50 old blokes. And I said, how many people worked here? And they said more than 10,000. So I was just completely blown away by that. I had absolutely no clue at all that that was the case. You know, like more, more than half the, uh, of those 10,000 people were women. And I later found out that that was about 8,000, including Bletchley Park and the outstations. So it completely blew my mind. And I thought, well, I've, I've got to try and tell some of the women's story, uh, the women that worked here, tell some of their story. Because I, looking online at the time, I couldn't find anything about them at all. So I went away that time thinking I need to raise some funding so that we can run an oral history project to record the memories of the women that worked there. So it took me a while, but eventually got some funding. We interviewed some of the women and kind of captured their uh, memories for posterity. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, it's just great listening to them, you know. And I, I think, you know, one of the great things for me about being involved with Bletchley Park is meeting all the veterans because they're just so cool. And, you know, even though they might be 85 or 95, you know, they're still amazing people that are really interesting to talk to. You know, very sharp, usually very down to earth, very sharp and, and very witty in general. Everyone that, you know, I've met and just really just really the coolest people I've yeah. met, I think. Did you connect with others? With, did you connect sort of with their stories too? Did you find stories that were sort of like inspiring to you? Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because, you know, it's funny because they weren't allowed to talk about what they were doing at work at all. Um, and one of the things, you know, so then went on to, I found out the Bletchley Park was um, potentially going to close. And so uh, then decided to to run a campaign to to try and save it. And so as part of that, I thought, you know, my main role was to kind of bring to everyone's attention, you know, the fact that the work that was done there was said to have shortened the war by two years. And at that time, 11 million people a year were dying. So it potentially saved 22 million lives. So I was trying to get that message across. And just what an amazing place it is to visit because their main revenue source, Bletchley Park at the time, was visitors coming to the site. And so, you know, they needed more visitors to, to kind of sustain um, to help them to stay open. And so one of the things that we did as part of the campaign was to me and various social media people and media people from uh, London mainly would go up to Bletchley Park. on. They've got an annual Enigma reunion day in September every year. So I think in 2009, maybe 2010, we went up and we interviewed lots of the veterans. And, um, and that was just amazing. And so some of them, it's quite funny. So because they had to sign the official Secrets Act when they, um, when they went there, lots of them still actually just won't talk about what they did, you know, even though they've been told they that can, they are allowed yeah. to but talk just, about it. Just... It's just kind of like locked away too far. And, you know, I've, I've been there when several people have said, I've signed the Official Secrets Act. I said I'd never talk about it and I'm never going to talk about it. So don't ask me. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so even that on its own, I think, is amazing. You know, that kind of gives me goose pimples just, yeah. just thinking about it. And, you know, I mean, I, th I think it was a very difficult time. I think, you know, some of the stories are quite funny in that the, the people that worked there were, were billeted out um we're in various different places so they kind of lived some lots of the women lived in a, a stately home down down the road from there so there was lots of women together like living together but um lots of people just lived with a family in the local area so i think for the people that lived on their own with a family it must have been extremely difficult because if you imagine you can't talk about anything much at work and then you go home where you're with this family and you can't talk about anything that you're doing so they they just have no clue what you're doing yeah and you can't talk to them about it so that's not going to really create a great atmosphere yeah, at home some, I don't some weirdo working at it yeah, yeah yeah no absolutely yeah. and i think they called it like the loony bin or something you know they, they thought it was like for psychiatric patients or something i think they just didn't know quite what it was um but i think so but the women the sort of young women where there were loads of them together i think they had kind of quite a good Support, time in yeah. in some ways because they could hang out with each other they couldn't talk about what they were doing at work but but they could talk about other stuff and you know I know that some of them went got the train down to London and went to dances in London and then came back and uh one of them told me how how they stole the vicar's bicycle to go to a dance and you know so they kind of came up with with quite funny stories uh about what their time was like but I think you know it really depended on 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 where you were living really I think in terms of whether it was a very difficult experience or or a less difficult experience. Yeah. And so what, what was the, what was like the 
success part where you were able to it was the key thing being able to get, help them get enough funding to keep it going and bring enough new people to it and doing that through social media was that sort of the tipping point yeah so we started the campaign in July 2008 and so then I was working as head of department and I emailed all the other heads of computing departments in the country and professors and asked them to support Bletchley Park um, asked them to sign a petition that was on the Prime Minister's website that someone else had set up saying we must save Bletchley Park and asked them to sign a letter which we sent into the Times newspaper asking for help for Bletchley Park. Um, so that kind of like kick-started it. Um, and then um, I managed to get on BBC News and stuff. So it was July 2008. And there was sort of like a crescendo of uh, well, emails, at least, or like contact for me from, from being on TV, basically, and talking about it. So that was all very exciting. But that was kind of like just within like a week or two weeks of the beginning of the campaign. And then after that had happened, I was just like, well, oh, what do I do now? Because like, I haven't brought in right. any money. Like yeah. nothing's really changed apart from loads of people know about it. But what, what do I do? And I really had no idea what to do. So I was kind of like chatting to people that someone that had got in touch with me because I'd been on TV. One of them was one of the code breakers, Captain Jerry Roberts, who was amazing. Um, and kind of like started conversations with him around, OK, what should we do? Um, it wasn't really till the end of 2008 I started using Twitter in earnest and realized that just by typing Bletchley Park into the search box in Twitter, I could find people around the world that were talking about Bletchley Park on Twitter and then have conversations with them. And I kind of like gradually, with the help of um, um, various people that were a lot more social media savvy than I was, I kind of got up to speed with Twitter, took some of those people up to Bletchley Park, and then they got Bletchley Park onto Twitter and Facebook and using social media. And then managed to get um, Stephen Fry involved uh, through Twitter and and then basically kind of ran a campaign for like three years, I think it was really until, um, and kind of over that time, Bletchley Park got, you know, they'd get a small amount of funding and then the amounts of funding were just getting bigger and bigger and bigger basically. So it seemed like kind of public confidence was growing in Bletchley Park as a, as a going concern. And I think before we started the campaign, that kind of atmosphere wasn't really there. People didn't really feel like that uh, about it. And um, yeah, so it took three years. But after three years, Bletchley Park got 4.1 million from the Heritage Lottery Fund. And so they knew then that they were going to be okay. Yeah. So I mean, it's sort of like one of those classic, beautiful stories of the internet when you're able to just reach a little bit further than we normally would have been and find the people who were just not necessarily right there, but were you know, all over the world, as you say, yeah, who yeah, were absolutely. interested in that. And I'm sure some of them were there and had relatives there and had all yeah. sorts of reasons for caring about it. Well, if you think about 10,000 people worked there you yeah. know, back right. then. Yeah. And so, of course, that's a lot of descendants, right? So loads of people. And practically every time I give a talk anywhere, there's someone who had a relative who worked at Bletchley Park. It's yeah. amazing. I gave a talk actually in the Computer History Museum in um, California. And even there, there was an audience of, I don't know, 100 and something people there was uh, one of the women that worked at Bletchley Park was there in the audience. And I think she was like 105 or something. She came along. And so I got to like chat to her. Beacon. Oh, it's just amazing. Um, You talked a little bit at the top when we first started speaking about how uh, one of the things that motivated you was uh, you felt like there was always all these negative stories about Mm. technology. Yeah. Um, There's still a lot of negative stories about technology. And it, it, you know, maybe this is just bad anecdotal information, but to me, you know, it feels like there's more, there's less of the, there's less of these sort of s- stories about like Bletchley Park and these things that were 
you know, when we were, when the internet was really starting to first come on and influence things in really big ways, it was just sort of like industry after industry that was having all these transformations that were really positive. And these last couple of years, it, it doesn't feel like the stories are as good as they used to be. Do you think that, you know, I guess I would say, do you think that the stories are still out there and we're just not telling them as much? Or, you know, have these sort of dystopia visions of the future become, you know, more possible? You know, I think news, right? News in general is the negative stuff. It's not the positive stuff. You know, I mean, we do now because, you know, we've got kind of like cats on YouTube or whatever. You know, we, there's kind of positive stuff out there. But I think that just in general, the media focus on the negative stuff because, I don't know, it's more eye-catching. It's more, it kind of grabs people's attention more. So I think that's that's just around everything, not just not necessarily technology. Um, I think there's so much more about technology in the media now because, you know, so many things are happening in, in so many different ways. And, you know, like 20 years ago, you know, Amazon was kind of, I don't know, just starting and, and, and we kind of moved through to now where shops are closing because, you know, people are buying it, everyone's buying stuff online. So technology is disrupting loads of different industries in, in many different ways. And so, of course, there's going to be loads of negative stories around all of that. And I guess that, in a way, is going to continue. Technology is becoming all pervasive. You know, it affects everything now. So there's going to be more negative stories about technology in the media. But at the same time, you know, I, I really feel that if we help people to understand technology better. You know, like we, did, we didn't learn it at school. I didn't learn it at school. Loads of people, there's, there's just so many things that people can do that they really just don't realize. And I think, you know, I mean, part of what I'm doing with Tech Moms is just to kind of get that message out there. And, you know, we're, we're targeting mums, but really my mission is just to try and change everyone's way of thinking about technology because I feel like the more as individuals, as organizations, as nations, you know, as countries, the more that we're tech savvy and understand some of the basics, you know, even like the, just the stuff that's on the Tech Moms program, you know, understand how to do a proper search, understand, you know, even basic kind of social media skills to be able to connect with other people that feel the same way that you do about things. Those kind of basic skills, the, the more that we are as, as individuals, as organizations, as countries, tech savvy, the more that we can take up the kind of positive um, opportunities that there are out there. And so you know, I kind of feel like it's, it's like my life's mission to try and make that change happen. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm just going to kind of keep going for it, really, because I just feel like that's what's changed my life. I can see it changing the mums that we work with. It changes their lives. And so I just want that to happen for everybody. Dr. Sue Black, our uh, Lifetime Achievement Award recipient at the Lovies last night. Thank you so much for joining. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Sue Black, for sitting down with us the morning after the Lovey Awards. Remarkably, even though we both had uh, a festive evening, her voice clearly held up a bit better than mine. If you want to watch the moment where we honor Dr. Sue Black at the Loveys, and I recommend you do, you can find a link in the show notes. If you're interested in learning more about the Lovey Awards, please visit loveyawards.eu, that's L-O-V-I-E-A-W-A-R-D-S dot E-U, or the Lovey Awards on Twitter and Instagram. And as always, if you enjoy this episode, please pull up your phone, head over to your favorite podcast app, and leave us a review. 
You can also find Tech Mums at techmums, T-E-C-H-M-U-M-S dot co, and follow Dr. Sue Black at Dr. D-R underscore Black. This episode of the Webby Podcast was recorded at Soho Radio Studios in London. Our editor is Jeff Rose. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Music is by Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a 1970s Pink Floyd album. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this has been the Webby Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details podcast. See you next week.